Well, this is a friendly bunch. Hey, it's good to have each and every one of you uh, here this morning, and uh, I just want to say a special welcome uh, to those of you who maybe haven't worshipped with us uh, here on Sunday morning. Uh, welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. Uh, we're a brand new church. Uh, we're a church plant. We've only been going for, I don't know, I've only been here a couple weeks, but you guys have been meeting for a couple months. And uh, my name is Brian, and I'm the pastor, and so it's great to have you guys all here this morning. I think I know, or at least recognize, uh, most of you. Um, if you've got your Bibles this morning, um, I'm going to invite you to go to Matthew 22. And I do want to encourage you to bring your Bibles each and every week. Uh, you can also bring up Matthew 22 uh, on your cellular mobile or an iPad or something like that. But we're going to be spending time in God's Word each and every week. And uh, before we uh, go there and begin to read Matthew 22, I'm going to ask us uh, to just bow our heads and have a word of prayer and invite the Holy Spirit to just um, uh, reveal uh, a few things to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we prepare to open your word for an opportunity to gather uh, around your very word, your very presence, around the sacrament of Holy Communion, around fellowship and God, around faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we prepare to read your word this morning, we invite your Holy Spirit to continue to dwell among us, that, Lord, we might be challenged, but that, Lord, we might also be encouraged to hear your good news today. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that we're doing a sermon series on discipleship. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus Christ? And we've looked at different aspects of discipleship. And so today we're going to talk about the approach of a disciple or the approach of discipleship. And the approach to discipleship, it ought to be real obvious. It's love. It's how we love God, how we love others, what we read a few moments ago in the book of Deuteronomy, what Jesus is going to continue to teach us in the New Testament. How do we love others as how, and how do we love God? So a few weeks ago, as I was preparing for today's message and I was thinking about what would be a really good example to contrast with love, something that all of us can kind of relate to that would be the opposite of love, something that all of us could go, yeah, that is not love, that is the opposite of love. And so a few weeks ago, I was really struggling with a sermon illustration that how I could say just a little something and we all would go, yeah, there's hate. Thank you, Charlottesville, Virginia, right? And so last weekend, we turned on our televisions, we looked on the, on the internet, and we saw a visible, tangible expression of hate. And all week long, I don't know about you, but it's just kind of weighed heavy on me, and I think it's weighed heavy on our nation, even the world. And we're asking ourselves the question, what is going on? Why does this hate continue to manifest itself in our nation. And hopefully you've done some soul searching and even asked yourselves the question, why does hate continue to manifest itself even in me? 
So we've all had a tangible expression of hate that we can contrast to God's love. And by the way, when we think about things that go on in Charlottesville, you know that there, at some level, that gets painted on us as well, too. Think about it. The KKK is a group of white people. The KKK is a Protestant movement. It started in the Protestant movement. The KKK is male, largely. And the KKK, skinheads. <laughs> In all seriousness, make no mistake about it, as Christians, as Protestants, we also get labeled as people who are affiliated with hate. And I don't know about you, but when I hear people calling us as Christians haters, I kind of want to say, wait a minute, you don't understand. That's not me. I'm not a hater. But I oftentimes feel misunderstood as a Christian. Anybody else feel misunderstood as a Christian in the world? Yeah, we get viewed and painted as haters. A few months ago, I was having a conversation about a pretty heated topic. And we were having this conversation, and this person was getting really frustrated with me. And they became exasperated with me, and they said, Pastor Brian, I don't know what your deal is. Love is love is love, period. It's that simple. And I got to tell you, I felt pretty misunderstood. And I wonder, is love is love is love, is that really that simple? I'm not sure it is. But I think in that moment, that person was projecting their definition of love on me. And they didn't say it outright, but they were implying, I am a hater. And I feel so misunderstood. Because I believe in Deuteronomy, what Debbie read just a few moments ago, and I believe in Jesus' words where it talks about love. See, I think we live in a world that is really confused about the definition of what love is. Once upon a time, maybe as Americans, we had an agreed-upon understanding of the definition of love, but today... I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's a lot of ambiguity about what love is. And so this morning, if you came to Faith Lutheran Church expecting a light and fluffy and warm and fuzzy sermon about love, this isn't the day. Because I think Jesus talks about love and he clarifies what love is in a whole different way. About a year ago, I picked up a, good, a book called Good Faith. 
And the subtext, you want to go ahead and put that up there, is being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. And it's written by a couple guys, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And these guys are researchers. And they go around the country asking all sorts of questions about people inside the church and outside the church. And then they ask them their opinions. And these guys wrote this book after doing extensive research across the United States. And this just really spoke to me, I think, as it relates to understanding the American worldview today. And they say there's so much confusion and there's so much tension as Christ followers today because the world has changed and the American worldview has changed. And so this is what they write. I put it up on the screen. It's a little small, but I'm going to read it for you. Older Christians who are a little further along on life's journey are wondering if their children and grandchildren are being lost when it comes to faith. They feel the tension of trying to express their faith in a meaningful way when it seems to fall on deaf ears. It almost seems like the whole language has changed. Pastors are feeling the tension too. They want to help people follow Jesus, but it is hard to disciple with lasting effect when many churchgoers show up only once or twice a month. Furthermore, churchgoers are immersed in an entertainment and media-saturated culture that shapes their lives and lifestyles in a deep, irresistible ways. Pastors tell us they worry about the commitment level of their people and their willingness to be disciples. And they feel, and they confess, they feel inadequate to untangle the complexities of the teaching of teaching people to follow Christ in today's culture. This is in the chapter called The Tension We Feel and Why. And folks, I feel this tension. And I know many other pastors feel this tension. And you probably feel this tension. And so what do we do as Christ followers in the midst of a world that has changed? Largely, we remain silent. We keep our mouth shut. Because it's so difficult to speak up in today's culture as Christians. Because we get labeled haters. And it's hard. And these guys address the difficulty of what it means to truly follow Jesus. I want to unpack this study uh, with you just a little bit more. Because, here, go back to that last sentence, because this is the word that really jumped off the page for me. It seems like the whole language has changed for what it means to be a Christ follower, and it has. If you're feeling anxiety, tension for what it means to be a Christ follower, the language has indeed changed. And so these guys ask after survey and survey and survey, they, they, they came across this report published by Barna, the Barna Research Study in 2015. And they come up with these six guiding principles to understanding American worldview today. So I want to just share these with you quickly uh, as we uh, kind of set this up. So the American worldview today is to find yourself, you look within yourself. 91% of Americans agreed with that statement. To find yourself, you look within yourself. Folks, that is in contrast to what it means to be a Christ follower. Because the Christian worldview is to find yourself. We discover truth outside of ourselves. We don't look inward to find ourselves. We look out. 
we look out to Jesus. 91% of Americans say, no, we look in. Number two, to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most. 86% of Americans said, yep, to, feel to be fulfilled in life, I'm going to do the things that I desire most. That's in stark contrast to the Christian worldview. As Christ followers, we believe that joy is found in pursuing not our own desires, but in giving ourselves away to bless others. True joy is not in seeking ourselves, but it's in giving ourselves away to others. But 86% of Americans say, no, we think it's about what I desire most. Number three, enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. 84% of Americans said, yep, life is all about enjoyment for me. Think about that. Jesus teaches us a different way. As the Christian worldview says, the highest goal in life is not about me, but it's about giving glory to God. Do you feel the tension, folks? Americans see the world in a dramatically different way than we do as Christ followers. Number four, the American worldview. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of Americans said, yep. And we hear this all the time, don't we? What people do at their house is their business, as long as it doesn't bleed out into society. But as Christ followers, we've got hundreds, if not thousands of years to know that what happens in the home comes out into the culture. God gives us freedom, and we celebrate the freedom that God gives us to believe whatever we want. But we have several thousand years of human history to know that those beliefs affect society. Number five, the American worldview is any kind of sexual expression between consenting adults is fine. 69% of Americans say, yep, we're fine with that. Oh, he just went there. The Christian worldview, according to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, is that God designed boundaries for intimacy in order for humans to flourish. Number six, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89% of Americans said, don't criticize me for whatever I believe. And the Christian worldview is loving others does not always mean staying silent. I'm going to drill down on number six here this morning. What does it mean to be a Christ follower who truly loves other people? This is hard work, folks. See, what the world says, what 89% of Americans say, live and let live. There is no moral truth. There is no biblical truth. There is no truth. So everybody just decide what you're going to live, how you're going to live, what you're going to believe. It's all good. Just don't criticize me. 
Is it warm in here? Getting warmer. Get warmer. <laughs> yeah, this is the tension in which we live today, folks. And it's hard and we feel it every day. And I know you feel it when you go out these doors. I know I certainly do. Some of you even feel this tension in your own families. So this morning, I hope to just give you a little bit of clarity in terms of where we're going, because the world says love is love is love. It's all the same. But I think Jesus has something else to say to us this morning. All right, you guys ready to go into Matthew? Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Somebody comes up to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? And when they're talking about the commandments, of course they're talking about the Old Testament. And every Jew who is there on that day, they're thinking back 1,400 years earlier to Moses when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in the beginning of the law. And when they hear this question, what is the greatest commandment as it relates to the law? Everyone goes to the law and they're thinking about the law. And every good Jew knows that God gave the law to Moses and to the Jewish people because God loved them. See, in those days, they had a definition of love, kind of like what we have today. Everybody just do what you want. Love is love is love. But God came to Moses and said, I love you so much. I'm going to teach you right from wrong. I'm going to show you good from evil. I'm going to clarify things because you live in a world that is ambiguous and nebulous and people aren't really sure what's going on. So God came to the Jewish people and said, I'm going to give you clarity and it's going to be so clear and I'm going to write it in a love letter. I'm going to call it the law. And so when they ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? All the people can think of, oh, the law. God loves us, and so he gave us the law. We read in Psalm 139. Actually, no, it's Psalm 119. David writes these words, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Make no mistake about it, God gave the Jewish people the letter of the law not to ruin their fun, but because God loved them so much. He gave them boundaries so that they could understand good from evil, right from wrong. And so when this question is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Everyone is thinking about God's love letter called the law. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, oftentimes people keep moving uh, through the text, but I think we need to pause and ask the question, what does it mean to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind? It goes back to the law. Quite simply, to love God means to follow God's law, follow God's instruction, follow God's guidance. Oftentimes we think the law of the Old Testament, Jesus abolished it. The problem is Jesus never abolished the law. He said, I've come to fulfill the law. And so how do we love God? We follow and obey God's word. And that's what helps us in our covenantal relationship with God. Now, sometimes we hear this word covenant. We think to ourselves, what is a covenant? That sounds like a churchy word. A covenant is really just an agreement upon the relationship. It's kind of like a contract or an agreement. Um, maybe, you get, uh, uh, maybe you've got an apartment uh, to rent out to me, right? You've got an apartment for me and we're going to sign a contract. And here's what's going to be in the contract. You're going to give me two bedrooms, uh, a kitchen, a bathroom. You're going to throw in the utilities except cable. Right? Cable's always extra. And I'm going to agree to pay $600 a month, and I promise to not trash your apartment. That's an agreement or a contract. A covenant is the very same thing, but it's always focused on relationship. So a covenant is really an agreement between God and God's people. And there's these, 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 these terms of the agreement. And God says over and over throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's how this is going to work. We're going to have this special relationship. And then God lays out the Ten Commandments, and he said, by the way, in order for this contract, this covenant to be effective, you shall have no other gods before me. We've got a special relationship. And so remember that one? Yeah, God just kind of lays it all out there. It says, these are the agreement, the terms of our relationship. I'll be your God. You will be my people. And it's a beautiful thing. And so how do we love God? We live into the covenant, which God promised in the Old Testament, and of course, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So what does it mean to love our neighbor? That's where I think it gets a little bit tricky. Remember back with the, the Barna study? 89% of Americans, to love your neighbor means you just love is love is love. It means whatever people want it to believe. Love is whatever it is. Everybody defines it for themselves. And most of all, whatever I believe, don't you dare disagree with me. Because when you disagree with me, you are no longer proclaiming love, you are proclaiming hate. 
So how do we love others? The world says, shh, stay silent. Don't say a word. Just don't judge me. As Christ followers, as we look at Jesus' life, Jesus never stayed silent, did he? As Jesus looked around, he saw sin and brokenness. And Jesus never stayed quiet. And I think about all those stories throughout the New Testament where Jesus is talking to people about the sin and the brokenness in their life. And he wasn't talking about sin because he was trying to ruin their fun or because he didn't like them. He was talking about their sin because he loved them and because he cared for them. And I think about the many ways in which Jesus got himself in trouble for speaking up and speaking out about sin. And I'm reminded on that day where he went into the temple, overturned the table and called the people greedy. He says, you've made my, my temple a house of thieves. What's wrong with you? And they chased him out. I think of other times where Jesus talked about people's sin in a very gentle and loving way. And I'm reminded of the day where Jesus and the woman at the well were talking. And as Jesus loved her and cared for her and acknowledged her sin, he looked at her and said, child, daughter, go and sin no more. Jesus didn't ignore sin, folks. He called it out. And he called it out because he loves us. And I think that's some of the hardest work that we have to do in our relationship with God. Now, you may be sitting here saying, yeah, but you're not Jesus. You're right. <laughs> and so I think our approach, we have to say always, 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 is that we love, we acknowledge sin with humility. We discuss sin with humility. And we've got to talk about it. We can't remain silent. Because when we do, I'm not sure we're loving people. You know, as I think about um, the ways in which Jesus expressed love to others, I think we would use the terminology today might be something like tough love. And as I've thought a little bit about tough love, I think about the hard and difficult words that Jesus would say to his disciples, to the crowds, to the religious leaders. He would speak up and he would use this language of tough love. And I think about tough love in our own day. And oftentimes we're reluctant to use this language or engage in tough love because guess what? It's tough. It's tough to hear the hard words. But it's also tough to say the difficult words, isn't it? Oftentimes I hear people say, I don't want to offer tough love to that person because I'm afraid it'll damage the relationship. I'm afraid I'll lose the relationship. To which I would say, do you love that person? 
enough to speak into their lives in love, in humility. That's what Jesus did is he practiced tough love. Can I give you a definition of tough love? Tough love is carrying a 350-pound cross for 650 yards down the Via Della Rosa for someone who doesn't deserve it. That's tough love. Tough love is forgiving someone when they least expect it and most certainly don't deserve it. Tough love is having your hands nailed into a cross when you are righteous. Jesus practiced tough love in word and in action. And I think tough love is true love. That's how Jesus defined it. That's how he lived it. And if we are going to be disciples who practice true love, folks, we need to get serious about tough love with one another. So what does this look like? This past week, as we witnessed and reflected on the events of Charlottesville, I heard a story about a dad who wrote a letter to his son, and maybe you heard that story too, but I think it's a great example of what it means to truly love someone. So I want to read to you this morning a story of tough love. My name is Pierce Teft, and I'm writing to tell you all with regards to my youngest son, Peter Teft, an avowed white nationalist who has been featured in a number of local news stories over the last several months. On Friday night, my son traveled to Charlottesville, Virginia, and was interviewed by a national news outlet while marching with reported white nationalists who allegedly went on to kill a person. Then the dad writes this, I, along with his siblings and his entire family, wish to loudly repudiate my son's vile, hateful, and racist rhetoric and actions. We do not know specifically where he learned these beliefs. He did not learn them at home. I have shared my home and hearth with friends and acquaintances of every race, gender, and creed. I have taught all of my children that all men and women are created equal. We must love one another all the same. Evidently, Peter has chosen to unlearn these lessons, much to my and his family's heartbreak and distress. We have been silent up until now, but now we see that this was a mistake. It was the silence of good people that allowed the Nazis to flourish the first time around, and it is the silence of good people that is allowing them to flourish now. Peter Teft, my son, is not welcome at our family gatherings any longer. I pray that my prodigal son will renounce his hateful beliefs and return home. Then and only then will I lay out the feast. His hateful opinions are bringing hateful rhetoric to his siblings, cousins, nieces, nephews, as well as his parents. Why must we be guilty by association? Again, none of his beliefs were learned at home. We do not, never have, never will accept his twisted worldview. He once joked the thing about us fascists is... It's not that we don't believe in freedom of speech. You can say whatever you want. We'll just throw you in an oven. Peter, you will have to shovel our bodies into the oven too. 
Please, son, renounce the hate, accept and love all. Here's a dad willing to lay it all on the line and say, son, tough love. I love you. I love you. I accept you. I forgive you. But until you change, you're not welcome here. I can't even imagine writing a letter like that to one of my kids. And those of you who are parents, you probably can't either. But what an incredible witness. And I think for us this morning, today, we're invited to live that same way, to speak the truth in love. Now, after worship this morning, uh, some of us are going to gather here, and everyone is welcome and invited uh, to stay. Uh, Afterwards, we're going to share in a meal. We are going to gather around the three F's, food, fellowship, and faith. And for about an hour, we're just going to be in relationship and community with one another. But this isn't just going to be a meal for some of you. For some of you, you are going to make a decision because you've been silent for a long time. For some of you, this is much more than just gathering around a table with other people. You're going to put a stake in the ground. And some of you are going to say, I'm done being silent. I want to be a part of a church, a faith community that lives true love. And that may mean tough love. And some of you might not be ready for that today. And that's okay too. Because all of us are on a journey. All of us are in a different place in our faith lives. And my hope and my prayer is that through Jesus' teaching, each one of us will take just yet another step forward in what it means to love others as Christ calls us to love others. For some of us, this, t- this text, this lesson, means that we need to have a conversation with someone, a loving conversation, and a humble conversation. And that scares you to death. And it should. Because when we practice love, we are risking. But folks, I'm reminded that Jesus risked it all through his tough love on a cross. And so as Christ followers, we're invited to step out and live into Christ's love. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for the extraordinary love that you demonstrated for us on a cross. That God, throughout your life on this earth, you spoke the hard words in a powerful way. God, the world is so confused about love. I think we're even confused about love. And so, God, give us clarity, give us wisdom, give us guidance, and give us your very presence that, Lord, we may no longer be silent, but step up and speak and live into love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.